for many, for a decade or two, we worked with the inner child concept. And it was uh, popular, I think, that uh, Eric Byrne made, uh, made it popular in games people play and transactional analysis. And a bunch of people about 20, 25 years ago. And so, you know, that's in the culture. So we deal with that. But what we discovered is that the more you go inside, the more interior you become. And it does not, it does not uh, automatically make you uh, capable of being in relationship. So we began to experiment in a different way, which is instead of exploring your inner world, we do, it, we do a little bit because it's important to identify what was the, uh, 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 what was the wound, uh, whether it was a, tra- tr- a trauma type wound or, you know, sort of an ordinary middle-class type wound, like my parents weren't there and I couldn't count on them versus they beat me uh, or, you know, left me or something. Or I got a divorce. But what we discovered was that the dialogue process is an interactive process in which I learn how to talk with you and you learn how to talk with me and we create safety in our relationship. And when we feel safe enough with each other, then our defenses drop and we connect. Uh, and the connection is energetic. It's not just, it's not just psychological. Mm -hmm. And we think it's probably the quantum field that we all are in uh, becomes the, the, the uh, we use the word space between, becomes the uh, energy in the space between. And we're blocked from that if we're, if we're negative and polarized, then we, we are in the quantum field, but we can't feel the quantum field because we only feel ourselves. We're locked up inside ourselves. But what we found is that we can keep you in dialogue long enough until you feel safe and connect that you will become more emotionally healthy than if we spent three years exploring your inner child. Welcome back, Neurohacker community. I'm Jacqueline, the producer for the Collective Insights podcast, and this is episode number 56. We've invited Harville Hendricks and Helen LaKelly Hunt, who are total legends. They're the creators of Amalga Relationship Therapy and authors of several New York Times bestselling books, including Getting the Love You Want. Their conversation today is all about love, connection, and communication, and how those things impact your brain health. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Be sure to stay tuned for our next episode with Dr. Andrew Weil, which will be released on December 15th. And as a thank you, we're giving our podcast listeners 15% off their first order of any of our products. And we just released a new product, an all-in-one clean energy shot. Go to neurohacker.com to try out the Qualia Nootropic Energy Shot and use podcast56, the code podcast56, to claim that 15% discount. Now, without further ado, let's jump into the show. Here's Harville, Helen, and our host, Heather. So welcome to Collective Insights. I'm your host, Dr. Heather Sanderson, and so pleased to be joined by this absolutely phenomenal couple, Harville and Helen. Welcome to Collective Insights. Oh, thank you for the invite. It sounds really fascinating. Collective insights. Collective like- insights. Yeah. yeah. So right. before before I hit record, Helen, you were um, giving Harville bunny ears and talking about how um, about a little bit about your relationship. It was this super sweet, cute little insight into how the two of you interact. Can you tell me how you how did you guys meet? 
Well, first, how did you know those bunny ears weren't maybe little horns? (laughs) Anyway, we'll move on. So uh, I was divorced, and my husband had gotten involved in the business world, and it just wasn't my ethic, and he did something illegal and had to leave the country. So I I had two little kids, and Harville was divorced, and, um, and he was a teacher of psychology and religion. And I was so longing for him to ask me out. Uh, He had two little kids, too. So we dated. I asked him if he could wave a magic wand. What would he want to do? He said, I want to write a book. Uh, I said, what would the book be? He said, why do couples fight? Why does the dream become a nightmare? Mm -hmm. So when I asked him to tell me why, and over time, I proposed to him. And I said, Harville, I want to help you get the book written. So it got written. That's how we met. Well, the part she doesn't say is that she told me not to propose. So she took five years to make up her mind. Oh. So <laughs> you know, we, we leave out the part of, the part of the story. And the other thing I think to throw in, which is me kind of fun, is, uh, and I think it's true of you, is that we both went to a party neither one of us wanted to go to. We went because other people wanted us to go with them or, you know, to fill up the party numbers and so forth. And I remember I went with a guy friend of mine because there were going to be um, a lot of uh, women there and he was divorced, I'm divorced, but I've dated and I'm tired of dating. I don't want to meet anybody. So I said, well, I'll go with you uh, and I'll stay for an hour. And he was anxious until you get comfortable, then I'm leaving. So I want to take my own car and sort of on my way out the door, there's a door and a hallway and Helen's coming down the hallway. And, um, and I, I don't know if you remember that exactly, but she turned into the door as I was going out it to go to my car. Cause I've been there for an hour. I'm gone. And so, you know, within five more seconds, we wouldn't have met and life would have been different. Right. But it's like you kind of wonder when you enter the highway and somebody crashes into you, was that supposed mm-hmm. to be? Um, so here we are 43 years later, still having the conversation that started uh, in, in the next week. We began to talk about, not about us or about a relationship, but about you know marriage and uh, psychology and religion. And the question Helen asked about what am I doing? And I was thinking about, a you know, a, at the time, wasn't even thinking about it too much about a book, but thought it was maybe a, a book someday. It, and was, it was a, a dream. dream. And and let me just say one more thing, and then back to you. And um, Harvard will maybe answer a lot of these questions. But um, when we did, he did accept my proposal, and we got the book written. Um, it took like five years or so, five or six years. And um, six weeks after it came out, Oprah called the studio. And she wanted him on the show and he went and she took his show and submitted it to the Emmy committee. And that book won Oprah her first Emmy. Wow. That's what she said. Uh, (laughs) I bet. Wow. I've got to have him on again. So she had him on again and again and 17 times. So pretty soon the book was in 60 language. People have been trained in Imago therapy. The book teaches a marital therapy um, that um, 2,000 plus 500 have been trained to be a Imago therapist in 50 countries. But it's really um, 
it is about the couple, the family, but also everyone needs to learn this stuff. Yeah. Good, well, good. You guys have, you've written a few books here, so I just want to clarify. We're talking about getting the love you want, right? This is the, the first book and kind of that foundational one that set up Imago Therapy and that was on Oprah, right? Right, and it was reissued uh, last year and it's 30th anniversary. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> Had finally gotten to the four million sales point. So wow. we're, kind of, we're kind of we're kind of awed by it. I was going to say, uh, I can't say proud. We had no idea it was going to go anywhere. So we're awed that it keeps going. Well, it uh, sounds you guys so, both came from divorce, and so it sounds like the, you were writing the book that you wanted to to read, right? That you were figuring out the answers to questions you needed. Exactly, and and in fact, that was it. We were both divorced, and so the question was, why do couples fight? Why do they get divorced anyway? Why are we divorced? Aren't we fine people? And here we are walking around wounded and got, you know, now we're a single parent and we have all the stuff nobody wants. What is all this about? So, and I was a professor of marriage and, of marriage and family as well as psychology and religion. So it was like, I should know the answers to this. But it was, the answer was not in the discipline in the 1970s. The discipline did not know the answer to that. Mm. And there are reasons that we could say why they didn't know, but they didn't. So that was the motivation that to start a research project saying, we're gonna answer that question. And then we finally got it written. It was actually from the time we started in 77 till 88 before the book actually was, um, before it was on the Oprah show, I think it was published in 88 88 and went on the Oprah show about three weeks later. So we had no idea any of that was going to happen. But now I was telling Helen the other day, I'm so tired. I get up every morning. I have to go do stuff. And the thing is, well, it's your stuff. You're not doing somebody else's stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You get to go do stuff. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, I have to change it. Yeah, you get to do this. <laughs> you signed up for it, and it's yours. So, so we and and we've had this marvelous experience of co-creation. Yeah, you know it's interesting because I've I've heard Helen say a couple times now the proposal and the book they seem to come together. At first, I was like, is she talking about a book proposal or a proposal of marriage? <laughs> so tell me about that. It, it, you know, the purpose of of romantic relationships. It sounds like co-creation is a, a big theme there. But can you just break down what are the purposes of the multiple purposes? Obviously, procreation is one of them. But yeah. um, talk about the purpose of relationship. Well. Uh, we think it's multiple, as you just said. Part of it, obviously, is nature reproducing itself and trying to keep the life form going because uh, the forms seem to die and they need to be replaced, so nature figured out how to do that. Uh, and they, But the thing nature didn't figure out so well was how to keep that organism uh, thriving. And uh, it, it had survived for millions of years, but thriving uh, is another layer and another level. So what we propose, uh, so, which is hard to research, although we've had several doctoral students now write dissertations on our thesis, is that nature uh, uh, not only went into surviving but thriving, and maybe surviving by creating a, uh, that's where the word imago comes from, Uh, creating an image, imago is a Latin word for image, creating an image in the infant's mind uh, of the caretakers. And that's the way that the infant stays 
connected to the caretaker. This is where my nutrients is and my protection. So there's a, a bond and a, and a uh, but it's a very practical bond. This big organism with the breast, you know, is necessary in my life. <clears throat> and the baby's making a movie uh, of all the interactions with this caretaker. And the interactions that are the most memorable are the same ones that are most memorable to you and me as the ones that hurt the most. Because the, um, the ones that were great, that's not a problem. It, the ones that hurt, that's the problem. Because that's connected to some uh, nurturing element that was not being provided. Maybe not enough warmth, maybe not enough time, maybe not enough engagement uh, while, while being nursed, the mother may have been preoccupied, or a whole number of reasons why the, we, we think that, that we're all interconnected and that that baby is experiencing connection with the, with the caretaker and with the father or who's ever around. And when that's ruptured by <clears throat> the caretaker being distracted, the caretaker being angry, the caretaker having to do something, the baby loses that connection. And that's what's recorded is the loss, the moments of lost connection. So the purpose of marriage. <clears throat> you know, I'm a nursing mother, so I'm taking vigorous notes. And yeah. Yeah. I want to know how, how, you know, even from an evolutionary perspective, if how do you stay connected without being and still get stuff done? Right. <laughs> well, there's apparently a way we have failed to do that as a species because nearly everybody has. Uh, wounds from childhood, uh, disconnecting wounds. I think what makes some healthy and some not healthy is a caretaker's awareness that even though she may have to go cook and clean the toilets and or go to work or whatever, that the quality of the interaction with the infant uh, compensates for a lot of um, absence or a lot of distraction. If when the infant is with the caretaker, the caretaker is present and we think that's the magic word is present, then the infant can tolerate the absence. But if you're um, present but not present, physically present but not present, then you're still absent. Mm. So the infant is experiencing physical absence and then emotional absence. And I can see now this going straight to a correlation with or a similar phenomenon in romantic relationships. Exactly. Because now I remember, and in my mind is an imago of my caretakers. Mm -hmm. So what was missing in childhood, I'm going to look for it until I find it and get it all through my life, even to my old age, and I may die without it, but I'm going to look for it until I get it. Because my brain connects what I didn't get with survival. It's not like it's an option, it's survival. And in adulthood, it might be an option, but in infancy, it's not an option. So I'm going to look around. Uh, when I'm, uh, you know, in my early uh, teenage and early adulthood during the search and find mission for intimate partner. But you, you know the thing called priming. Um, but I'm primed for a particular kind of person. And that person is like my caretakers, positive traits, but they must have my caretakers negative traits. Mm. Because I can only, now here's the thing I don't understand. But it's a fact, a clinical fact. I can only feel satisfied by getting what I need from a person who did not give it to me. So to finish the childhood transaction, I have to have a caretaker who was not there in the way my caretakers were not there. 
and I'll be attracted to the, my, my mind will say, there's the unfinished business. I walk across a crowded room at a bar or church or wherever I meet somebody and I fall in love. My brain has said, I'm falling in love now, but that person will have the traits that are similar to the traits the caretaker had, which produced my deepest emotional pain. Well, and do we bring those out of the person that we choose or are they inherently already there? Well, that's a, that's a good question. And I think that the answer to the question is both that, that we expect them to behave in a certain way. They are not primed to behave that way because of their own childhood. So then they, when we say, where is that hug or why didn't you call or when are you? It then triggers that part of them that was wounded in childhood. And then they behave more like the caretaker as a result of our critique of them, which is why, uh, as we'll talk about later, uh, and, and Helen talk about asking for what you want in a way that promotes you getting it rather than getting what you uh, don't want by the way you ask for it. So the purpose, it seems, of marriage is to reconnect, is to, is, to, is to finish childhood. And that is to find somebody who reactivates the unfinished childhood agenda, who, meaning they have the traits your caretakers had that, that uh, left you with that agenda. And then the purpose is to connect with them and to get what you need from the person who's least capable of giving it to you. Sounds like a setup for arguing and divorce. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> but, it, but it's also a setup for mutual healing. Yeah. If you take turns learning to, because they did the same thing. Yeah. And I love in your material, uh, you talk about um, uh, a, a thesis that you have that the body has an innate intelligence. Yeah. That it knows what it needs and it's drawn to someone who absolutely cannot give you what you want yeah. in certain ways and and thus the purpose of marriage becomes two people learning to heal each other's childhood ways. right there's this invitation for deep deep healing yeah when we discovered however this thing that uh, i'm the person i'm drawn to is the least capable of giving me what i want and i'm the least capable to give helen what she wants so when we discovered that in the development of the theory and the clinical research now uh, many years ago, over 30, um, I frankly uh, went through a, a, a professional depression. Like I'm in a career in which there's no win. Why would I want to work with couples? There is no way they can do that. But we kept working and, and asking questions to uh, couples. And what we, and the short version of this is what we discovered is that um, what Helen wants from me, and to make this true of all couples, what Helen wants from me is a part of me that's really in me, but it's got shut down in my childhood by my caretakers and by my life circumstances. Um, and like in my case, more emotion. I, got, I, I had to shut down feelings to survive, and that was very early in life. I had two uh, parental deaths uh, before I was six, so, and then we lived on a farm and feelings are not very useful on a farm, but hard work is. So feelings didn't, were not, um, useful. Uh, so, but left brain, cognitive work, planning, hard work and so forth was. So, but those feelings are there. Everybody's got them. And so Helen needs them. She needs the part of me I'm least capable of giving. So what we discovered was if I will, uh, risk 
moving into my feelings. And what we found is you can amplify when you don't feel something like um, I can say, I love you. You know, if I amplify it, I do something. And with you into the body, you know that you can charge your cells with the energy of, of intensity. And slowly I began to unlock my emotions. So she, here's, the, here's the, the beauty of it. We discovered it's the best thing you can imagine because nobody else would ask me for that. Mm-hmm. She needed the feelings. I didn't have the feelings. If I respond with feelings, I get my feelings back online. So her request of me is a gift to me to help me back to my wholeness and then, and then vice versa. So then we realize we've discovered a gold mine. But the world doesn't know it. So they just think we're incompatible. And we say, well, your incompatibility is the grounds for a great marriage. Mm-hmm. Because that's where you get the most growth and, and the most things. So then we realized we had a gold mine that if we could get this languaged and put it into a therapeutic process and then get it out, we would have a therapy that nobody else had because nobody else had figured that out. So that's answering the purpose. What's the purpose of marriage? It's basically to finish childhood and to become whole again. And we discovered that's only possible through a relational process. You cannot do it by yourself. You have to have, you have to have a polarity and that other person triggers, you respond to the trigger, eventually you move into growth and connection. And now you've got the purpose of marriage is to recreate wholeness that you had before you got wounded. And this is a phenomenal, I think intellectually, I'm, I'm so excited. There's so much magic. Now, how do you live it? So tell me about the therapy. If, some, if a couple comes in and um, are you seeing people or are your trained therapists seeing people on both ends of the spectrum, like newlyweds that are very much in love, thinking, oh, this can never happen to me, but I want to prevent divorce. And then also couples either about to get divorced or going through separation, I'm sure. Yeah. seeing all of that. And then what do they experience? They come in and they see a therapist and what does that look like? Okay. Do you want to talk about that? Or, um, or shall I? Well, I, I, yeah. one, one of the things we do, there are different things. I'll just do a little and then you take it. But like one of the things we do that couples longing to gripe about their partner and um, <clears throat> complain about their partner needs to be fixed. Mm-hmm and list their problems and brain science and i know you're really great with brain science what you focus on is what you get right Right. so um an early thing we teach a couple is uh or we, we invite them out of talking about their problems into thinking about what they wish were in their relationship that might be missing at this time um but immediately um the therapist um Puts, says, we're going to teach you a different way to talk, and it's called mm-hmm. dialogue. And you need to turn and face each other. And actually, um, we're going to teach you a way to take turns talking and listening. The three steps of dialogue, mirror, validate, and empathize. And um, I'm here in the room, but you all really know what your issues are, and you all know what the solutions are. So I'm going to have you all talk with each other about your issues and the solutions. Um, but let's learn the dialogue because I don't know what you, I don't know what you need, but Mary, you do know what you need and want. And 
um, Bill, you you know what you need in mind. So mm-hmm. you all need to learn to language that to each other. Um, but before we talk about issues, would you, using the dialogue process, tell each other, um, what was the dream that died? What did you think this relationship would be like when you all decided to make a pledge to each other? Mm-hmm. Just sh- share a few things and the other mirror back. You know, what, what did you expect life? What would life be like? You know, taking a walk once a week or um, a surprise getaway once a month, romantic getaway or a back rub. Uh, while we're watching TV or and so take turns what was the dream that died in the other person mirror and then we'll switch and you just and often that just everyone gets caught up in what they thought they were going to get and and the other person listens and goes well I could do that <laughs> right what a way a great way to get someone to articulate what the things that they need or the things that they were looking for so we totally yeah. disrupt their their mm-hmm. typical way of thinking and yeah. teach them to think in a different way. You're right. We're not interested in their complaints. We know what they are. <laughs> um, and they're the same. Uh, everybody comes in. They're talking about ruptured connection. And that it was great when they fell in love. Then the rupture came and they've been trying to make it happen again. And just to uh, amplify what Helen is saying, we have couples talk about topics that we know they are interested in, but we're not interested in the topics. We only watch how they talk about it, not what they talk about, because that was the other big discovery um, in, in addition to the purpose of marriage was couples can't solve problems uh, that they bring to the relationship, like um, how do we parent our kids or sex or money or whatever unless they talk with each other in a certain way that makes the environment safe. And once they're safe, they then become partners and can collaborate. But if they're not safe, they'll become opponents and try to negotiate or polarize or uh, control, dominate, and win. So that was the other, it was a nuance. It took what we discovered that nuance um, in in terms of formally, about, uh, well, well, it started basically uh, with, with Helen in, uh, in 1977. We had just started seeing each other, and I don't think we had become a couple at that time. We were having a problem just being friends. <laughs> but there was some interest, and enough to see each other regularly, but not, not an exclusive relationship immediately. But we've always had an intense relationship, and a lot of it's been negative. And we're candid about that because um, it, was, it, it was negative for about 20 years uh, until we finally figured it out. This is the but laboratory for your work. <laughs> we, in fact, we even have an essay on that calling our relationship as a living laboratory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we ended up doing everything wrong. <laughs> yes, yes, we did. Yeah, and, then so during, good. and then, well, that's wrong. Well, that doesn't work. Well, that doesn't. So it's just well, that makes you experts on the subject. Yes, yes, we can say we've been in the valley of the shadow of death and we do no evil. Um, You know that biblical phrase that that, that comes out. So, Helen, we were having uh, an intense conversation, uh, more popularly known as an argument, uh, in Helen's uh, living room. And 
Helen um, did something that changed the course of our relationship and changed the course of Imago therapy. She said, stop. One of us listen and the other one talk and take turns like kindergarten, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So, so, uh, I, so we did, I mean, that stopped us. And so we did, we, we followed that and I'm a clinician. So I register what happens to my emotions and my body. And I noticed that taking turns talking rather than talking at the same time regulated me and my body uh, relaxed. So um, that was so impactful that I went to my practice and started being deliberate with couples about taking turns talking, not talking to me, <coughs> uh, because that's, that we discovered is sort of parallel psychotherapy, but talking to each other and let me help you do that so that you actually do listen and talk in a certain way. And it took probably 10 years to add, and and so we started off with mirroring. Just say back what you hear. And then we found out, and talking with couples, that that was good, but not good enough, because couples wanted something else. And we finally learned from them that um, the second thing they wanted was, um, they, they started off wanting agreement, but clearly you're not going to get agreement because you have different brains and different experiences, but you can get validation. That is, I can see how you can see that and that you are seeing that that way, that it's actually a green color and it's not yellow. Like I said, it's green for you, mm-hmm. for you, not for me. It's green for you um, or whatever. And so validation then began to be a, a more powerful second step in what finally became a three-step dialogue process. And we kept asking them, okay, what else would you want in this conversation? And right here in Dallas, we were, practice was here at the time. A woman said, well, I want him to know, I want to know if he knows how I feel when I'm experiencing green, how I feel. So, well, you know, I know about empathy. She wanted an empathic response. So I asked the guy, can you imagine how she's feeling when she has that experience? And he said, well, probably, I don't know, scared. And she said, yes, I'm scared. And I said, well, are there other feelings? Did he get it? And she said, well, I'm scared and I'm I'm pissed. Um, And he said, so you're scared and you're pissed. So I held him in the mirroring of her reaction. So she then breaks into tears and says, it's the first time in my life I've ever felt seen or heard is when you mirrored me back, you validated my point of view. That was the one he had a hard time doing because he thought he'd have to agree that the world was green when for him it was yellow. But he said, oh, oh, I can see that the world is green for you. And that was fine for her. So with Helen triggering dialogue in 1977, it was probably about 1987 before we, it matured into a three-step process. And then dialogue became the therapeutic intervention. We don't do anything else. So those three steps, I just want to review them. It's, will you go through them? Yes. Um, so uh, the first one is mirroring. Mirroring. And mirroring is um, word for word or if you want it, 
and, and this is another thing about couples, they're so complimentary that I want, uh, I want a paraphrase and Helen wants word, word for word. So I don't listen to words, I listen to themes. So with Helen, I have to learn to listen to words that carry the theme. Helen uh, d doesn't listen to the theme, she listens to the words, so she has to figure out the theme and my words. Am I making sense? Yeah, absolutely, right. yeah, she, you're looking for the pieces that are, yeah, that complement you. And which there's a complementary, and so we have to stretch into that. I have to mirror Helen uh, word for word. In a so certain way. And she mirrors me, she mirrors my themes. So, so mirroring validation? And validation is, um, it, it, and we use sentence stems, and the sentence stem for mirroring is, let me see if I got that. Mm. And I mirror it back. But then we use a, a second thing, which is, did I get it? Which is an accuracy check. Because the brain only receives about 20% of what comes at it. So you're always wrong. Uh, there's always more. So you have to say. That, uh, that's so freeing. I, I really appreciate hearing that. That hit me. You're always wrong, right? Like wrong. there's yeah. a lot of freedom in that, right? You don't have to get it right. And in fact, you won't get it right. But giving it a shot is what maybe makes but I want it valuable. It <laughs> but I want you to mirror it all. So that's why we said, did I get it? Mm -hmm. And the person says, well, in these structured things, your retention rate goes up because you have a structure. Um, but then you say, um, well, is there more? Which is a, an element of curiosity. I think, Helen, you brought that into probably only about 10 years ago that Helen brought in. She, she's a source for a lot of ideas. I take them and build a house out of them. But she comes up with the, you know, with the, with the models. So curiosity, is there more about that? And so that, and what we found instead of saying, okay, I've heard you now, it's my turn. Uh, can you listen to me? No. You go, is there more about it? This is all mirroring. Let me see if I got it. Did I get it? Is there more about it? What well, can I summarize all that I've heard? So if I've heard it, you had this, and then it was this, and then this, and this. Did I get it all? So validation. Validation is, I get that. What makes sense is that uh, with that experience, that you would have responded that way. That really makes sense. I wouldn't have responded that way, but I don't say that. I stay with your reality. I can't just throw mine in the middle and say I'm different. We just assume you're different at the point. And we tell couples you're different. You can never be the same. Give it up. Not going to happen. And that's the beauty. And that's the beauty. Yes. And, and uh, when you discover it, <laughs> <laughs> that difference has infinite possibilities, but sameness has only one, which is the, the one you think. And then you go to after. Um, so you make sense of what makes sense is, then you can say, and given what that experience was for you, I can imagine the, the empathy that you might have felt glad, sad, mad, or scared. One of those configurations of affect. So now you've mirrored, validated, and been empathic, and then you switch, uh, and you can talk about the same topic, or uh, the person may want to talk about a different topic. But the point is that as uh, Imago couples therapists, uh, we are happy with you talking about any topic, but we're going to regulate rigidly, like a horse, like riding a horse, mm -hmm. how you talk about it. And one is you can't be negative. You just will not, you can't say, you never do so and so. Um, so we regulate that and say, let's change the wording of that so that you can say, I wish you would when you're late, give me a call. 
Mm. Uh, so that you move to an engagement and and uh, and and no judgment. You got to take judgment out, unless you just want a bad relationship. Then you can be judgmental as one. But if you want a good one, you have to let negativity go. Period. That may take you two or three years, but you have to do it, and you have to want to do it and practice doing it. And then you have to do go into affirmations, because we discovered we thought when we took negativity out of our relationship we were fine, but we weren't. Because there was a void, and Ellen has a slide, slide in our workshop, we just said, we got rid of negativity, but we didn't have anything to say to each other. <laughs> Tape over the mouth of this, of, this, of this picture. To have to add something, which is affirmation, and which is, I like you, I appreciate you, I value you, thank you for doing that. There has to be positive energy in something going in to fill the void of the negation. So that's essentially a kind of therapeutic process for us. It looks like you want to add something to that, Helen. Well, maybe, um, Heather, just to mention that um, I know you're all about preventative health and health, body health. And Harville, you yesterday were talking about gratitude and how that consolates a healthy body. Mm-hmm. And so um, if I had to summarize what we're really about is um, – with Harville's instinct to get this out of the therapy office and into the public and and teach this as relational competency, um, which is what we're now doing. Uh, We call it safe conversations. You don't have to go to therapy to get this after you're broken. Mm -hmm. You can use this out in the world um, in schools and teach children you know, How, Helen, that's exactly what I was thinking. Was like every every child should have this before they graduate from high school or before they probably go into high school, right? The, these they, tools it, for how to communicate, that it's not just about relationship in a romantic sense, but relationships between friends, between colleagues, between uh, teachers or, or people in positions of power, just how you communicate, what you bring to that. And, um, it, and one of the things that struck me just since – talking to you guys communicating with both of you is your interest right Helen you've you've been very clear that you've studied who I am you know who is who you're talking to and Harville you just mentioned how it's the curiosity it's that interest mm-hmm. um, in the other person that both of you are demonstrating in our conversation but it sounds like there's something really key to that can you can you speak more about about curiosity yeah Helen's Helen's yeah. very mm-hmm. vocal about that well, also, also it, it is Harville that shows a video at the beginning of every talk or every workshop or every training. It's Edtronic, the still face uh, experiment. Edtronic, a psychiatrist at Harvard University. And they were trying to determine the role of um, babies as they grow. Is it their DNA that makes them who they are? or is there socio-emotional content that comes from the way the mother treats the baby? Because some people said, look, no matter how they're raised, their DNA determines who, who they are, their personality and who they are. And so it was, a, it was challenging the, the medical paradigm. And um, a little baby is put in a chair and the mother is present with the baby Um, And the baby points and looks up and looks down and the mother points with the baby and looks up and then looks down and the baby giggles because the mother's resonating with the baby. 
And then the mother is instructed to stop resonating with the baby, but just have a still face. She's there, but she's not attuned to how the baby's feeling. And uh, it's a four, three, three minute, no, two minute, minute and 45 okay. seconds. It's yeah. a two minute video yeah. for anyone to watch it. And the baby begins to decompensate. She can't get the mom to echo the baby's emotions. And that's about the baby is longing to be seen by the mom, the caretaker. And every person, if it's a special relationship, they are wondering um, not how smart you are, but they're really wondering, can you see who they are? Mm -hmm. They feel like you can see who they are. They relax in your presence. And no matter how smart you are, how much you're interesting and you like to entertain other people or whatever, they, they don't, they want to be seen. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, the, the, so we, Harville takes little things like that. And I do throw out a lot of suggestions, but he lasers a way that, uh, any two people can better shift from conflict to connection and it's called relational competency and for the this is the main thing for your listening audience to hear for the first time in the history of the world the relational sciences are teachable it was the breakthroughs in the neurosciences in the 1990s neuroplasticity etc plus uh, relationship they're be getting better and better, and Harville had a big role in that. Harville's particularly good at lasering what any two people need to do to transform from conflict to connection. And this stuff, for the first time, can get out there. You can teach it in kindergarten. You can a couple that's deciding to make a commitment to each other. They go to get their marriage license. Shouldn't it be like a driver's license where it's such an important decision? Shouldn't you read a manual and show some proficiency and take a test and pass the test about how you're going to treat each other before you get your license to get married? (laughs) And it sounds like before you have children, right? Because so much of what we're talking about are imprints from childhood. Can you talk a little bit more about... um, inner child work. So people who arrive at adulthood, maybe with, with some burden that they're bearing from the past or from trauma as a child, and but looking to have this this competency in terms of relationship and, and communication, what kind of inner child work can they do? So we have, um, for many, for a decade or two, we work with the inner child concept. And it was, uh, Popular, I think that uh, Eric Byrne made uh, made it popular in games people play and transactional analysis, and a bunch of people about 20, 25 years ago. And so, you know, that's in the culture, so we deal with that. But what we discovered is that the more you go inside, the more interior you become, and it does not it does not uh, automatically make you. Uh, capable of being in relationship. So we began to experiment in a different way, which is instead of exploring your inner world, we do it, we do a little bit because it's important to identify what was the uh, uh, 
uh, what was the wound, uh, whether it was a, tra tra a trauma type wound or, you know, sort of an ordinary middle class type wound, like my parents weren't there and I couldn't count on them versus they beat me uh, or, you know, left me or something. I got a divorce. But what we discovered was that the dialogue process is an interactive process <clears throat> in which I learn how to talk with you and you learn how to talk with me and we create safety in our relationship. And when we feel safe enough with each other, then our defenses drop and we connect. Uh, and the connection is energetic. It's not just, it's not just psychological. Mm -hmm. And we think it's probably the quantum field that we all are in uh, becomes the, the, the uh, we use the word space between, becomes the uh, energy in the space between. And we're blocked from that if we're if we're negative and polarized. Then we we are in the quantum field, but we can't feel the quantum field because we only feel ourselves. We're locked up inside ourselves. But what we found is that we can keep you in dialogue long enough until you feel safe and connect. That you will become more emotionally healthy than if we spent three years exploring your inner child, because. As you know, with the brain science, as Helen said earlier, what you focus on is what you get. So we began to discover we were helping people be less healthy by staying in the inner world and doing traditional psychotherapy than uh, if we help them come out of that and engage with competence with another human being until they knew how to create safety in the relationship that gave them a new, the inner world is primarily memory. Um, and if you go in and just nudge around in your memories, that's uh, all you get is awareness of your memories. I had a patient but, yesterday who was talking about going to psychotherapy and he struggled with um, PTSD from early childhood trauma. And he's like, you know, I've tried it all and EMDR and this and, and that and psychotherapy. It's like I'm being re-traumatized. Yes, yes, exactly. Right. And he, his words were exactly sort of what you're describing. He's like, I need a new way to live with this. Live with this, which is learn how to interact with another human being, i.e. In, in talking, mm -hmm. and learn how to listen. A traumatized person has a really hard time listening. But you have to hold them until they feel safe enough to listen. And and, and, you know, so that takes some patience and some really high level skills to not say listen, but to hold them until you see, because you're not listening unless what you hear changes you. Up to that, you're hearing, but not listening. So you have to move from hearing to listening. But when you listen, you get a new memory. And when you get this memory of connecting with this human being, who's looking at you with a smile and, and the glare is gone and the tone is inviting, you're getting a new memory like the memory you got from the uh, a resonant and uh, attuned caretaker in childhood before they weren't there anymore. It's the, it's the new memory. So you rearrange your memories by having new residents in the household of memory. And those new memories begin then to restructure uh, your brain. You get new neural pathways. It, you know, as you know, it takes a few times to get a new neuron, but if you repeat it and 
and hold it and give it some energy, you'll actually develop a new neuronal path. Right, right. I was talking to another guest recently, and she called it uh, chop wood, carry water, this kind of Zen idea that it's just repeating this same thing over and over so you can get those tracks out of the the trauma history, right? Those repetitive thought patterns that we have into new, more positive and healthy patterns. Like you want to build a new highway. Exactly. Uh, Like here in in the country, we had these little highways, and then we built these superhighways. And the superhighways are a lot faster. But if they break down, you know, or you get scared of them, you'll go over to the old highway because that's familiar. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you know there's a big new highway and you're just scared and you got off, you can get back on. But if you don't have that experience, then you don't know where, anywhere to go except to explore the old highway. And that won't get you anywhere. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it'll get you more neurotic than you started with, which is a challenging thing to say to the psychotherapy world that we think probably we created a pretty narcissistic culture with our with our focus on the self and we need to focus on interaction and then we change the interaction we change the inner world so so that's our response to the uh, but we used to do um, Helen you remember we we did a burn we did transactional analysis we did gestalt back in the years when we were both on our way and we did all of that because that was what was in the culture. And then we discovered this is not working. Right, right. Yeah. Not working. Are you familiar with John Gottlieb, I think is his name, up at the University of Washington? It sounds like there's a bit of overlap. Gottman. Gottman, excuse me. John Gottman. John and Julie, yeah. Yeah, yeah right. John is, uh, you know, he's the preeminent. 40 years he's done couples research and more than anybody else. And so in since in terms of research reports, he probably knows more about couples than anyone else and um and he would i mean we are on the same wavelength they're our friends we talk to them and are in the same groups and in fact we are in a in a group called uh, relationships first collaborative and we meet and and have zoom links and and uh, occasionally get together for a weekend oh, that's so incredible. he's a great guy he's a great guy so it's fun dan siegel as um, uh, you probably have talked to Dan, who's in, who founded Interpersonal Neurobiology. Uh, if not, he's a person that we'd encourage you to interview. Yeah, he absolutely. is really articulate, <laughs> especially about the brain, the mind, and relationships. Yeah. Uh, he wrote yeah. the book on those three things. So in, in our work here at Neurohacker, um, the way we think about complex chronic disease is that there, even though we call it complex disease, it's not really that complicated. There's really only five things that potentially can cause that. And stress is one of the big ones. Toxins, nutrient, it's imbalance overall, right? Too much or too little stress can cause, can they can both be imbalanced, right? If you're not getting exercise or um, that's too little stress. But so toxins, nutrients, structural issues, and then infections can also, of course, cause disease. But one of the primary ones in our society is, is certainly stress. And I think what you guys are offering is a is a solution to the most common form of stress, which is interpersonal dynamics and relationship stress. Right. When I do an intake with a patient, I'm always asking, what is your relationship like with your partner? Are you partnered? What's your relationship like with your, your parents, your children, your siblings? Your, yeah. Do you have good friends? And what you're talking about, the, these things, of course, that, that uh, the sort of primary partnership is super important. But what about people who don't have that, who aren't, who aren't married, maybe have no interest in being married? Do you have advice for them or thoughts about how they might enter into other relationships? Or? 
Well, I have several things that, that I could say, and, and I'm maybe sure we both we can do, add to that. We do that. So the the most uh, salvific mm -hmm. thing that we can say is that uh, intimate partnership is only one path. It's more intense because it's intimate, and you are with that person every day. But your best friend, we do say you should be in a social group of some kind. Maybe you're at church or synagogue or or something. But you got to be around people, and because you are a social creature, and if you don't uh, activate those social uh, instincts and needs, you will get sick. And you're, um, you, you'll, you know, the I forgot. I just so do the do the telomeres lengthen or, or shorten with stress? They they, they shorten. Uh, they shorten with stress. Yeah. You want longer telomeres, and so I, I was thinking the other day I had that right, and then somebody said something else, and I said. Surely I didn't get that wrong, but anyway. Um, so, uh, uh, what was what was the question I was answering? Well, I just to... around different types of relationships that aren't that primary romantic yeah. relationship. And you know, I love hearing from both of you. You really do complement each other so well. So please, Helen, jump in when yes. Harvell's finished. Yeah. Well, well, well I, th I think I think the only thing I, else I would say is the primary place that most people can have this is at work. Uh, which is one of the reasons why we want to take safe conversations to corporations, because we've learned of some research that there are 13 percent of corporations in America have what's called a lateral relational culture. Their profit margin is 400 percent higher than the other 87 percent of corporations that have a vertical corporate model. So you, here's the guy who's the boss and everybody else listens here. Everybody's on an equal plane gets heard, listened to, and so forth. They like working there. And over here, they don't get listened to. They don't like to work there. They have an 87% turnover rate. So um, so work is a primary place uh, to get it. Your religious institution, any place where there's interaction with another human being, you can learn and practice this process. And when you do, you'll do what you know you do. You reduce stress. Then you lengthen your life, and everything works better. So... So I, I do love what you just said about uh, chopping wood, carrying water, the, uh, the yeah. sort of um, when you do relate to anyone from a place of wonder, um, it's very different. Um, it, it's, it's a religious, it could be a spiritual practice or a good brain uh, neur neural integration when you um, shift from the lower brain to the upper brain. So we do go through life. Uh, I know I'm, I like that I'm a critical thinker. I also don't trust people, and I sort of err on the side of looking for the problems and in a, in a smart way, because if you identify the problems, then you can solve them when they're little. But at the same time, it's uh, uh, I need to train my brain also to move out of that lower brain and move to the upper brain, and that promotes neural integration. Mm -hmm. They say between the left and right brain hemisphere is uh, something called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, and that's the place of not knowing. The left brain knowing is logical knowing, the right brain knowing is intuitive knowing, gut, gut knowing, instincts and things like that. And between the two brain hemispheres is not knowing. And Totally terrifying. 
Well, well, Dan Siegel, the interpersonal neurobiologist, says that, quote, tolerating ambiguity is a sign of brain health. And when I read that in a book one day, I thought, no, 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 no. Being smart is a sign of brain health. Mm. Uh, Knowing things is a sign of brain health because I was working so hard to know stuff. I, I couldn't understand what he meant by tolerating ambiguity. And I called him and I said, gosh, you know, and, and I got curious about that shifting from judgment to curiosity and wonder. And if you go through your day practicing wonder with people, it could be a um, uh, the checkout person at Walmart or a, a waitress at the coffee shop or waiter or um, someone in your life. But pausing to be present with that other person is something that makes your brain feel good. Plus little sayings, like there's a Jewish scripture, I lift my eyes to the hills from which cometh from my health. Help, Help. H-E-L-P, my help cometh from the Lord. Like I can be multitasking and busy and anxious and worried about this. I'm very worried. I'm very worried about this. I'm very worried about that. But then every once in a while to pause and go, you know what? I'm not going to solve everything by myself. I'm going to lift my eyes to the hills and hope that I get help maybe from God or the universe or the mailman or somebody. But I'm going to, I need other people to make my life work. And I have to trust that. If I ask in the right way, they'll show up. We yeah. can't do it all on our own. Yeah. I want to make a comment about what Helen just said because she, uh, she, as I said, she picked up on uh, the "is there more" as curiosity, and began to explore that. and And she got interested in that if you stay curious long enough, which is I wonder becomes wonder, that if you stay curious long enough, you drop predications and stop language, stop. Uh, labeling stuff and that's when you know don't know label labeling is thinking you know when you say i have no label for this it's a sensation it's all i know is a sensation you move then into a stand that was so beautiful to to follow her mind you move into wonder if you wonder you move into wonder and when you your partner becomes uh wondrous then you're living with somebody who's different from the one you were judging uh, before, because in judging, I'm trying to get you to become like I need you to be. But when I move to wonder, I'm accepting you for who you are. And that's really what I need you to be. But I thought it was the other thing that I actually need your reality and your authenticity and your difference from me. We need to differentiate so we can really connect. Because if we're symbiotic and fused, we can't connect. We're merged and blended. But that's that you that's not a that's a relationship, but it's a struggle. Right. right. When you're differentiated and connect across the not knowing space, then uh, you experience wonder and surprises can show up and new information can show up. But it takes a lot of work to move out of the knowing to the release of uh, into the not knowing. And Helen's been a, an amazing uh, mentor uh, to me with the concept and with and with the process. And yeah, she, I can see that you live it, Helen. It's, it's really beautiful. Yeah. It's so neat. Yeah, it feels really good. You, your um, neurochemistry begins to release dopamine and acetylcholine and norepinephrine instead of the 
adrenaline and and cortisol from the lower brain yeah. and you don't all that cortisol running through your body is toxic yeah. and being anxious is toxic and that's what takes us back to the beginning of this hour that Harville, um, it was just two or three days ago, and because you don't always talk this way, but it's so neat. He said, gratitude is good for your health, practicing gratitude. And he said, Helen, why don't we, every night before going to bed, tell each other what we're grateful for mm -hmm. that day? And, and it, we, we ordinarily, before going to bed, each of us share three appreciations of each, of other. each other, which was the time that. 15 years ago, I used to, right before going to bed, I would tell Harville what he did wrong that day. should give me my list and, for improvement. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I didn't have a very good marriage. I didn't know why he wasn't very happy. And he decided not to do that before going to bed, if I ever needed to do it, because maybe I didn't, I should drop the whole thing. And because Harville knows what he needs to do to improve and not really me. So. Well, you know so, what I need, but, but bringing it up on bedtime. Doesn't help. I think the uh, the other thing we like to say also, is also if he needs something, other people will tell him. Like if yeah. he has spinach between his teeth, I'd rather not tell him and let other people give yeah, him feedback. Grain. If he's supposed to change something, I try not to be yeah, the one to say it. Our children will do a good job. <laughs> the other thing about this is how do you operationalize all of these marvelous concepts? Mm -hmm. And here's the thing we're we are just uh, thrilled about is the dialogue process integrates the brain. So when you say, let me see if I got that, you're now out of your amygdala and you're into the prefrontal cortex receiving. And when you have to say, did I get it? Um, you may have had an emotional trigger, but when you learn the dialogue process, you must say, did I get it? And if they say, well, not quite, you can't say, well, what did I miss? You have to say, well, can you tell me it again? Mm -hmm. So the brain knows, this is another thing we learned from Dan Siegel, which is really surprising. Dan said one, to us one day, he says, you know why meditation works? I said, yeah, you know, you meditate on, he said, no, no, no. Meditation works because the brain knows what's coming next. And he said, I said, okay, what's coming next? He says, breathe, after breathing in, you're going to breathe out. And the brain knows that. That's what gives you all the benefits of meditation, not these things you meditate on or about. But if you don't breathe, and that's why breathing is focused on, even if the meditating instructor doesn't understand it. That, but the breathing in and breathing out is the traditional historic accompaniment to meditation. And the brain knows, well, if you breathe out, you're gonna breathe in. Well, in dialogue, you know that if you mirror, uh, that when you say something, you know what's gonna come next. Your partner's gonna mirror you. So you don't have to be anxious. You're going to get a. You're not going to get a judgment or a counter. You're going to get a mirror, and then they're going to say, "Did I get it?" You know that. So the brain doesn't have to get prepared for an assault. And then if you say not not quite, he's going to say or she's going to say, "Well, can you send it again?" Oh, so I'll send it again. And then once you say, "Well, now you got it," you say, "Well, is there more?" So the brain knows this is coming next. So you move all the way from um, the emotional brain to the cognitive brain back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And you know, when you can do that with some um, facility, your brain is becoming more integrated and therefore less reactive. So that's why we want to focus on the process. And we don't care about the content because we know if you get the process down and practice it long enough, you'll have a brain 
that then can interact with other human beings without pissing everybody off. So it sounds like if you create this safe container, if you if your brain realizes that it's safe in the relationship, then now you can shift a little bit more into what you were describing, Helen, where you can be uncertain, right? If you know you're safe, then that uncertainty doesn't feel so scary, right? Yeah. And then that's where a lot of magic happens. Yeah, and I would say you well can't said. you can't go to uncertainty well without safety, right? Because you have to to safety gives you a certainty. So, but if you, uh, I mean, uh, unsafety gives you a certainty, you're unsafe. So you can't drop your defenses and go to new knowing. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you are not defended because you're safe, then new data can come through the filter. And now that's what we mean by you, you know you're listening if you're changed by what you hear. That's the new stuff. And so safety is just non-negotiable in a thriving relationship. And very few relationships are safe. So they're, they have to use tactics and transactions and defenses. Right. They live together and they survive, but they don't thrive. So there's this other concept that, you know, you can't expect everything from your partner. They're not going to be your, well, maybe for you guys, but they're not going to be your lover and your book editor and your cook and your, you know, your best friend and your best travel companion. So is it, you know, these days there's more, maybe less conventional relationships. And do you see an argument for that, for like polyamory or for um, if, certainly uh, same-sex couples? other types of relationships? What are your thoughts there? So do you want to go with that? And we also noticed that we're going to have to go because it's, uh, it's two o'clock. Um, we, um, um, well, I think a couple can co-create what each other needs and wants in terms of uh, support systems yeah. all the way around. Yeah, I, and that, I would say the same thing. Using the dialogue process, you, you talk about all that, and then you, in a collaborative rather than a competitive way, and then you co-create your relationship, and then you take on roles and all of that so that you, it, it becomes, you become creative and inventive uh, rather than uh, following some template. So you're saying it's possible. Is, is that absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Great. If you use the process so that you get to safety, yeah. then you can enhance the future. If you don't get there, you will repeat your past. Mm. I know you guys are very busy, and I completely understand why. You have so much wisdom and experience um, and inspirational information to, to share with the world. So I will let you get to it, to sharing it with the next lucky person. Um, and thank you so, so much for taking the time. I really, really appreciate it. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you today. Well, well, we appreciate that you're talking about what can we do to prevent problems from happening instead of how do we treat the problems once they're huge. And this is what uh, we wish people could know. We have a relational technology that can help people prevent problems from right. happening. Yeah. So we're really very grateful you're willing to let us tell your viewing audience, your listening audience, listening audience about it because um, we have a website and anyone who would like to be trained in this it's a there's a training program to take to your ecosystem or just learn about it in other ways come to a workshop yeah just go to the website harvillandhelen.com and 
all the links are there. All the books, I, all the links. I want to thank you for the quality of your questions oh, and you. for the quality of the conversation. So we are interviewed a lot, and we know when we're talking to a good interviewer, and you're good. Well, thank, thank you. you. It, it really is. You guys make it easy. It's just such a pleasure to talk to you, um, and you're, you're so engaging and have such great information to share. So, again, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being with us for this conversation with Harville and Helen. Remember, this podcast is made possible by Neurohacker Collective. Use the coupon code PODCAST56 for 15% off your first order at neurohacker.com. If you like this episode, then please go leave us a five-star review on iTunes and share it with all of your friends. And make sure to subscribe to Collective Insights wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. See you next time.